You're listening to Life, the Universe, and Everything Else. Today on the show, we talk about icebergs. Conspiracy icebergs. Life, the Universe, and Everything Else explores the intersection of science and society. Original music is produced by Ian James, and this episode was edited by Marissa McCool. Find her on Patreon at patreon.com slash QAF. My name is Jem Newman, and with me on the show, I have Ashlyn Noble. Hello. I found the mute button again. <laughs> Laura Creek Newman. Hi there. Lauren Bailey. Hello. And special guest, our intrepid editor, Marissa McCool. Hello. Yay. So today we are talking about some wild conspiracy theories. Some conspiracy theory. These theories have layers, like an onion or like an iceberg. Apparently those come in layers too. (laughs) I'm not sure I really get it. So I'm going to pass things over to our guest, Marissa, who's going to kind of explain how we're going to do things today. And she's also going to lead us off on our first segment. So take it away, Marissa. Sure. So like I explained at the end of last episode, the iceberg theory is kind of a way to not only use a form of storytelling and kind of demonstrates a way to go on a rabbit hole about a particular topic. And it can be anything that you want. It can be reality, it can be fiction, it can be some kind of extended universe that you can dive into. And the whole idea is that the stuff on top, the tip of the iceberg, if you will, is probably more of the commonly known facts or theories that pretty much everybody has agreed on. And the deeper you go, the weirder, the stranger, the less proven, things like that. And it can be a fun storytelling technique. It can be a fun way to investigate. If you're autistic like me, it can be a fun way to try to structure special interest research. And a lot of people have used it to dive into shows or movies that have very extensive backstory or maybe haven't answered all the questions that people have, like a Game of Thrones or a Star Trek or something like that. And usually at the top, you'll find stuff that everybody knows. And then by the time you get to the bottom, you'll find stuff that's so outlandish and out there that it either isn't plausible or most people wouldn't even buy into it. Used in reality, like how I used it, most of mine is fact-based. But as I get deeper, the stuff gets weirder or darker or stranger or however you want to put it. So... It's a little bit more open to interpretation than just conspiracy theories in a sense, but it can be used for that. And there are plenty of YouTube videos doing just that. So I would recommend a YouTube search and see if you can find your favorite universes or favorite topics iceberg, because there's probably some out there. But today we've condensed it a little bit and we're going to do shorter versions of it, because if we all did icebergs on everything we wanted to talk about, we would probably have a seven-hour podcast. And as your editor, no. (laughs) (laughs) I'll do my best, Marissa. (laughs) I was going to say, remember when we held an entire library full of people hostage and did a live show? Oh, boy. (laughs) 
And there wasn't even any like audience participation. We just made them sit there and watch. <laughs> I tried to have audience participation in my segment. We did it twice. Did we? I don't there even was remember a, what there the was to- a quiz topic was. There was a quiz show, and then then there oh, was the one yeah. I did a segment about people and cri- and believing crystals had healing power. Mm-hmm. So, with that explanation out of the way, Marissa, do you want to start us off with our first iceberg? Certainly. So, one of my special interests is demographics and statistics about cities. And I enjoy digging into the numbers, looking at how they've changed, and looking at the facts and the stories behind it to see how they reflect. So what I've constructed here, because I do live in the U.S., and as we know, anyone who lives in the U.S., that is the only country that exists. So I've kept it simply because there's so many cities in this country, I haven't quite gotten to the world study yet. So this is my iceberg about weird things about American cities and some of the statistics that back them up. If I went, once again, too deep into this, we would be here all day. So I will start on the first layer. Seattle, Washington. Near the fish market slash tourist attraction known as Pike Place, there is a wall that people have been sticking chewing gum on since the 1990s. It was cleaned once in 2015, where 2,350 pounds of gum were removed. However, Seattle, re- Seattle residents quickly added the gum back on because, well, <laughs> Seattle. This wall is literally the stuff of nightmares. <laughs> Sometimes it comes across my Facebook feed and I just, oh, I can't deal with that. Don't go in summer. The stench is horrible. Ooh. What is that smell? Juneau, Alaska. The capital city of Alaska, despite having a relatively low population at 32,000, is the biggest capital city in our country geographically at 3,255 square miles, including 928 square miles of ice cap. It is not the smallest capital population-wise, however, as that dubious honor belongs to Montpelier, Vermont, at just over 7,000 residents. Portland, Oregon. The city was named after the town of the same name in Maine. This decision was made, weirdly enough, by coin flip. Two people were deciding on this. One was from Boston, Massachusetts. The other was from Portland, Maine. And when they were deciding what to name the Oregon coastal city, had the coin landed on the other end, the residents would be clamoring to keep Boston weird. What is up with Americans not wanting to name things new stuff? I completely agree with you. Ashlyn, you live in Winnipeg. The cities, the streets. Sorry, Lara, I cut you off there. Oh, I was just going to say, or or speaking of Winnipeg, sticking with the names that were already here, maybe? (laughs) True. (laughs) A good way to go. New York City, New York. The states of New York and New Jersey have been engaged in a land fight over the island that contains the Statue of Liberty. Due to it being on a water boundary between the two states, both believe they are entitled to the sales tax generated by the millions of people who visit the island and buy kitschy souvenirs from the gift shops. The fact that New York was once New Amsterdam was not considered a valid argument by New Jersey as a reason to maintain possession of the island because, after all, people just liked it better that way. (laughs) Brat. (laughs) Second layer. We're going to go a little deeper below the water now. Thurmond, West Virginia. 
In the mountains of West Virginia, you can visit a town that was abandoned more quickly than the rest of the state. A railroad ghost town, made famous by YouTube urban explorers, has gone from a collection of abandoned buildings and cool bridges to a town similar to Centralia, Pennsylvania, where people visit for the novelty and exploration. Due to the influx of visitors, the buildings are much more restricted than they used to be. So by building an interest in visiting a town where nobody lives, the town may coincidentally see a resurgence in population sooner rather than later. Miami, Florida. Miami is the only major American city to be founded by a woman. When Julia Tuttle from Cleveland, her husband died, she purchased 640 acres in present-day downtown Miami to begin a new life. Interestingly enough, a microcosm of this concept was depicted in the baseball film Major League, where the widow of the late owner of the Cleveland baseball team wants to relocate the team to Miami to begin a new life, lest she end up having to feed her tiny puppy real dog food. I presume this portion of the film was a documentary. It was all based on Dido and Carthage. Absolutely. (laughs) Galveston, Texas. Many cities in the U.S. have built on top of its older infrastructure without many people realizing what they're walking on. For instance, Seattle. Galveston, however, was the victim of the deadliest hurricane in U.S. history in 1900, killing over 6,000 people and basically leveling the city. The rebuilt city sits 17 feet above the old one. Cool. (laughs) My favorite underground city weird fact is the, and I don't remember which city it is, but maybe you know, the place where they have those almost like little windows that look down into the old tunnels and they're purple now because of the UV light over Hmm. so much time. I do not I'll know try that Googling one. it. Yeah, where is that? <laughs> New New York in Futurama. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. <laughs> and the last of the second layer, Duluth, Minnesota, one of my favorite places in the world, just a few hours north of here. Along the majestic shore of Lake Superior at the lake's westernmost tip, a weird abandoned building sits about 50 feet offshore in the lake. It is the stuff of legend, but in reality, it's an abandoned loading dock that, like most of Duluth at one point, was the product of ideas that underestimated the gnarly bitch that is Lake Superior. In addition to the post-apocalyptic-esque, awkwardly-shaped water museum of failure, most of the city's breakwaters were created because the original harbors built in the mid-19th century fucked around and found out with lake effect weather. If you ever have any question of that lake's power, simply look up the famous ship that last departed Duluth in 1975, the Edmund Fitzgerald. The lake, it is said, never gives up her dead when the skies of November turn gloomy. I'm from Thunder Bay. Lake Superior <laughs> is my, it's in my blood. Yes. Well, actually, I, I swallowed enough of it that it is in my bloodstream. <laughs> uh, she, <laughs> she does what she wants. <laughs> Third layer. Now we're getting deeper. Flint, Michigan. The Flint water crisis took place in the mid-2010s and happened because something something bootstraps America Freedom Jesus caused the governor of the state to go, you know what? That whole lead pipe conspiracy bullshit has been coddling the residents of Flint for just too long. Much like its automotive counterpart, Detroit, the closure of an automotive plant in Flint led to population and economic declines, and, surprisingly, exposing city residents to dangerous amounts of lead did not help this. In 2015, a year after this decision was made, one EPA study found the amounts of lead in the water to be 25 times higher than the level deemed actionable. But because the victims were mostly people of color and poor people, nothing really happened except the governor was reelected. And even worse, the mayor of Flint diverted assistance and charity money to her own political pack. 
the residents of Flint, despite having no water usable or drinkable, were still pursued relentlessly to pay their water bills. At the beginning of this year, the debt has reached $40 million and the city vowed to pursue, and I quote, especially the habitual non-payers, because irony and satire are indeed dead. God. Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. After the armies departed in July of 1863, after the famous Civil War battle, the small town of Gettysburg, population around 2,500 at the time, now had to deal with over 50,000 injured soldiers and dead bodies. From reports of locals at the time, the visions of horror and suffering were only outdone by the unfortunate overwhelming smells. This was due to it not only being summer, but during an insufferable heat wave on top of that. There were also the dead animals, like horses and mules. One town resident had 17 dead horses on her property alone. With 72,000 horses and mules in Gettysburg for three days, the smells of death and heat-induced decay were complemented with what those animals left behind, each horse producing roughly 50 pounds of manure a day which ended up being 3.6 million pounds that had to be removed once everybody left. That is indeed one big pile of shit. Too much poop. (laughs) Gary, Indiana. The once thriving city near Chicago, Illinois, the population has plummeted since the 1960s, dropping from 180,000 to roughly 78,000. The city was built on a swamp and defined by steel, as it was literally started by a steel factory. The pay was low, the area was extremely segregated, and the unfairness led to protests for better pay and conditions at Gary Steelworks. The city was thriving economically, even called, ironically enough, the city of the century, before the collapse of the steel industry. The social issues didn't go away, though, as the city elected a black mayor in the 1960s, and almost immediately the city's population went into rapid decline. While the steel industry, leaving the area, usually receives blame for the blight of what the city has become, The underlying theme that ran throughout the entire city's history is segregation and racism, and many believe that part of the reason the steel plant produced massive layoffs was in response to the election of the black mayor, even though some of the layoffs had already started a short time before that. The city once had 32,000 steelworkers and now sits, the entire city, over 20% abandoned. Wow. Cairo, Illinois. Known as the saddest city in America by some, this town pronounced differently than its Egyptian counterpart because America, (laughs) fuck yeah, that's why. (laughs) Ridiculous. No, don't do that. You can't can't take the name and then say, we're going to say it different though. (laughs) Oh God. Oh, are you kidding me? (laughs) (laughs) There's so many of them in in your country. It's so funny. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Oh, we have our share. Let's not pretend. (laughs) And it, ironically enough, sits on a floodplain near a river delta, similar to Cairo, Egypt. (laughs) An extremely isolated community, this likely future ghost town is filled with abandoned lots where many former homes have been demolished, including two apartment complexes supporting 15% of the town's remaining population in 2019, as they were full of asbestos and poor living conditions. In 1967, which is a common year as well as a theme throughout, a black man was found hanged to death inside the all-white Cairo police station. In response, a bunch of deputized citizens called White Hats started patrolling the streets, which, surprisingly enough, increased the tensions. Many of the businesses were burned because they wouldn't hire black people, 
And it happened on a worse scale than most places during the time, including another city I'm going to get to in the fourth later. (laughs) I-57 caused the town to be completely bypassed. And with the town's economy being entirely reliant on outmoded transportation, the population plummeted from 15,000 to right now just over 2,000. While many blame the downfall of the city on the railroad and steamboat industry no longer becoming necessary to get to Missouri or Kentucky... As you're probably gathering with a lot of these, the root cause is not the economy. And finally, the fourth layer. I mentioned this one earlier, Centralia, Pennsylvania. In the late 1960s, a landfill fire in the Pennsylvania mining town off Route 61 ignited a threat of anthracite coal underground. Anthracite, which tends to burn extremely long, started to create difficulties for the residents of the town, like the expulsion of poisonous gas, sinkholes, cracks in the road, and other mishaps. And it caused the town to be condemned and inspire the movie Silent Hill. However, some residents of the town are convinced that the fire wasn't nearly as dangerous as the state described and believe that the state utilized eminent domain not to get everybody off the land so that they wouldn't fall into the earth, but so that they could profit from the anthracite coal deposits themselves. The pandemic, among its other casualties, led to the closure of the abandoned section of US-61, which was a cracked highway covered in graffiti over the years that it's been accessible. But all the free time people had due to the lockdowns led even an abandoned city to say, all of you get the fuck out. <laughs> yep. Ashtabula, Ohio. In 1876, an iron train bridge collapsed with a loaded train on it containing 160 passengers. Those who weren't killed in the fall burned to death because of the oil lamps igniting the wooden cars. 48 of them were unrecognizable and placed in a mass grave nearby. 20 days later, the bridge's engineer was found dead, ruled a homicide, and the killer was never found. The president of the railroad that built the bridge committed suicide six years later. The strange circumstances have not only provoked stories of ghost sightings, but Many theories around the mysterious happenings afterwards. Warren, Minnesota. On a late night in 1979, Marshall County Sheriff Val Johnson was driving on the rural stretch of the road when he saw what he described as a brilliant white light. He then claimed that the light was in the car with him. He woke up a half hour later in a ditch with burns around his eyes, his headlight and window smashed, and his watch and car clock both ticked 14 minutes slow. The 1970s were the most prominent decade of UFO sightings in Minnesota, supposedly. (laughs) And this is considered to be the most realistic of all the stories, which is likely why season two of the TV show Fargo, which took place in the same year, had a similar plot line involving bright lights and weird time shifts that turned out to be a UFO. Oh, that's fun. Mm -hmm. And finally, Detroit, Michigan. Many people blame the urban decay of the motor city on the automobile industry leaving the area. However, another catalyst may be responsible for the rapid decline of population of the city itself, despite the surrounding suburbs and county not seeing any loss whatsoever. Much like Gary around the same time in 1967, police arrested all 82 black patrons of a welcome home party for Vietnam veterans. Mass protests in the black neighborhoods spread quickly, and the National Guard was called in to suppress the rioting. The protest lasted five days and 43 people were killed. This is believed to exacerbated the concept of white flight in Detroit and the demographics backed that up. While Detroit's population sank from almost 2 million people to around 630,000 in the most recent census, surrounding suburbs like Farmington Hills, Livonia, and Sterling Heights have seen tremendous growth and wealth contained within them. While Detroit has fallen into disrepair, declared bankruptcy, and displays some of the most famous and worst urban blight in the U.S. 
It remains to be seen if those familiar sounding events will have a similar effect in Minneapolis, where I lived in 2020. But interestingly, what seems to connect Detroit, Minneapolis, Cairo, excuse me, Cairo, and Gary in these contexts, it isn't the automotive industry. Later that night when his lights went out of sight in the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald. That was Thanks awesome. For Thank you. Sure. Okay. I would like to say that I found what I was talking about. I only had one small detail wrong. They were not two underground like rooms or anything, but they were areas you could build around your buildings. And then these little squares would let there be light. And I, I don't know. I don't really understand what the... It says ventilation, but I don't understand what that works. But they did turn purple after a while. So they did create these cool like purple sidewalk deals that are really neat and they're apparently all over the place but the example i found was in vancouver and victoria oh very cool Hmm. interesting mostly they're pretty (laughs) so i was up next i decided to do an iceberg with an iceberg in it and return to one of the special interests of my childhood i was very into titanic facts as a kid yay i had multiple books with thousands of Titanic facts and they didn't appear as much in my conspiracy theory books though. So I was excited today to learn some of the more wild Titanic conspiracy theories that I looked into and I will not tell you very much about because I'm trying very hard to keep this short. (laughs) Real facts. Interesting and well-known, but not strange. The Titanic was the largest ship of her time. That's like one of the best known facts probably ever. She sank in the North Atlantic Ocean on the night of April 14th slash the morning of the 15th. The lifeboat system was designed to ferry passengers to nearby ships, not to hold everyone on board. In addition, many were launched only partly full. So that contributed to the high death toll. Distress calls, which wrongly placed the ship on the west side of the ice belt and directed rescuers to a position that turned out to be inaccurate by about... 25 kilometers contributed to how long it took the Carpathia and other vessels to find the Titanic and help the people that were in distress. I didn't know that one. I thought that was an interesting new fact that I had not learned, but Mm -hmm. it appears to be true. My next category I named, whoa. Whoa. These are strange, (laughs) but essentially true things. It was widely believed at the time that ice posed little risk to boats. This blows my mind. In 1907, a German liner had rammed an iceberg like straight on and suffered a crushed bow, but it was still able to complete the voyage. So after that, people were like, whatever, we can do whatever we want. The same year that that happened, Titanic's future captain, Edward Smith, declared in an interview that he could not imagine any condition which would cause a ship to founder. Modern shipbuilding has gone beyond that. Oof. (laughs) Well, now that you've said it. (laughs) Right? (laughs) Yeah, jinxed yourself. Yep. Number two. Musicians really did play to the end, according to several passenger accounts. Reports differ on what the final song was, but because it's the most poetic choice, most accounts go with Nearer My God to Thee. None of the musicians in question survived. This band on the Titanic, near my God to thee. The fourth smokestack on the Titanic was fake. 
that sounds like a bullshit conspiracy theory, Mm -mm. but it's true. The fourth one was just fake because people at the time thought that more smokestacks meant faster and safer. So that was better. (laughs) But the Titanic's design didn't actually need a fourth one. So they built one and then they put a first class smoking lounge inside of it. (laughs) (laughs) I was going to say it was a smoke stack. (laughs) Yeah, the the smoke was highly dependent on time of day. (laughs) (laughs) something that they ran into in the production of the movie was that the designer of the whatever they did to make the ship didn't know that and so put four real ones on (laughs) Mm. one of those funny little inconsistencies number four a movie starring an actress that survived the sinking premiered 31 days after the sinking So she was heading to New York to film a silent film at the time, and she survived and managed to get herself to New York, and her agent was like, we're doing a movie right now. (laughs) The movie is sadly lost after a film studio in 1914. Only a few promotional images remain. So many old movies are gone because of the flammability of the material. It's really amazing that they could get a turnaround that quick what with all the cgi that i'm sure they were using at the time (laughs) (laughs) i read way too much about this while i was reaching like useless info that i will never use so i'm gonna offer you some of that info now at the time most films were one reel so like 10 minutes long so it surprised me less once i understood that most movies were 10 minutes long (laughs) yeah yeah all right my next level i entitled uh so these are (laughs) there's a grain of truth here The first one, I feel, is well-known among people who know things about Titanic stuff, but among other people, this is pretty cool. So there's a novel called Futility by Morgan Robertson. It features a ship named the Titan, described as the largest craft afloat, the height of luxury and comfort. The latest technology was used in the building of the Titan, making it practically unsinkable. Because the Titan was considered unsinkable, she only carried 24 lifeboats, enough to carry 500 of the 2,000 passengers on board. Here are some comparisons between the novel and the Titanic. Both collided with an iceberg near midnight in the North Atlantic, 400 miles from Newfoundland due to excessive speed. Both ships had too few lifeboats. Both were launched in April and their disasters happened in the same month. Both were the largest ship afloat, deemed unsinkable and a wonder of its era. Both had passenger capacity of 3,000 and both had three propellers and two masts. The climax of the story is when the Titan hits an iceberg on an April night killing 2,987 people as it sank. So what's so strange about a book that rips off all of the details of a well-known maritime disaster? The book was obviously the result of prophetic vision slash psychic powers, since it was published 14 years before the Titanic sank. Hmm. Just like creepy levels of... And there's like way more things that are super similar, but those are like, that's enough. Yeah, that's up with the Earth Seed and Trump conspiracy theories. Yeah, yeah. Holy, those books are prophetic. Oh. What was that? Earth Seed, the Octavia Butler books, have basically Trump in them. Yeah, yeah. Huh. the Parable of the Sower and the Parable of the Talents. Yeah. I read the Parable of the Talents. For our book club. Was, <laughs> yeah, was that, that was around the time of the election, right? When What year was that? It was just after the election. It was 2016. We were doing yeah. the book club. Yeah. It was it was creepy. <laughs> mm-hmm. And of yeah, course, 2015 was the premiere of Hades Town, featuring the hit song "Why We Build the Wall." <laughs> 
Number two in my... At the moment of collision, a movie was being shown in the second class saloon. So talked about a movie earlier. Movies were still considered by the wealthy to be like kind of lower class. So it was in the second class saloon because the first class people could still go there if they wanted to be like slumming it. The movie that was playing was an unusually long movie for the time. It was 57 minutes. So it was very long for the time. And it was called The Poseidon Adventure. About six... (laughs) passengers who are trying to escape from a sinking boat oh it, no it played for the first time that night at 11 p.m and then it was so popular that they restarted it around midnight and the passengers who came up onto the deck after that second showing was finished realized when they reached the deck after because they had been told like hey everybody we're going up to the deck most of the lifeboats were gone by then oh dear <laughs> oh rough that's awful but i just want to say wow what a long and distinguished career leslie nielsen had (laughs) (laughs) this was the original (laughs) silent movie number three no bodies are ever found by surveyors of the titanic there are only ever pairs of shoes this has led some people to say that no one actually died it was all fake but actually it's just because bones dissolve really easily at that depth where are my shoes it's just they're just gone they're over there yeah. they're gone now it's been a really long time yeah number four the ship that sank was actually the olympic the titanic sister ship which launched before her and was the the namesake of the class it had been involved in a crash that white star line was deemed responsible for that kind of fucked up the front of the ship like it had a big hole in it because white star line had been held responsible for this they could not collect any sort of insurance and they had to pay for the other boat so this was very expensive for them and they had to fix up this boat so white star line swapped out the olympic and the titanic and scuttled the olympic on purpose so that they could collect the insurance properly and build another boat that wasn't screwed up yet (laughs) okay This falls down on a number of levels, including the fact that the ship was only insured for $5 million and it cost $7.5 million to build in 1914. Holy moly. (laughs) So it it doesn't make sense on a whole number of levels. But there is a kernel of truth to it in that the Olympia was involved in this big insurance thing and there was some issues. All right. Next level. No way. These are loosely tied to reality, shall we say. First up, I couldn't decide which of these to include, so you get a haunting two-for-one. Number one, there's a haunted mirror that is possessed once a year by the dead captain of the Titanic. It was left behind on his dresser when he left, and the maid was allowed to choose one item from the home, and she chose this mirror, but she couldn't keep it around anymore because once a year he appeared. It was auctioned off for a great deal of money. Of course. Also... A cursed mummy, of course, was the cause of the sinking, as we all know. It was being shipped to New York aboard the Titanic, and and that, of course, is the root of all of the problems that happened. (laughs) Okay, that was our haunting two-for-one. Number two, a fire in the coal bunker is the actual root cause of the disaster because it weakened the bulkhead before the impact. And in addition, shoveling all of that on-fire coal into the furnace to get rid of it is what led to the high speeds at which the Titanic was traveling. There have been entire documentaries about this theory, apparently. Okay. Number three. (laughs) J.P. Morgan purposely sank the Titanic. So J.P. Morgan kind of semi-owned the Titanic. He was a big financier behind it. So And he canceled his passage on the Titanic. 
he purposely sank it in order to kill three other millionaires that were going to be on the Titanic who opposed creating the Federal Reserve, which he was in favor of. So again, this makes no sense on multiple levels. But my favorite is that the three millionaires, two of them, we have no idea what they thought about the Federal Reserve. As far as we can tell, nobody, they never told anybody, they didn't care. The third guy was in favor of it. (laughs) (laughs) So that's a fun, and that's apparently a QAnon conspiracy. Fun times. That that sounds sounds like it. That's, yeah. Nothing ever actually happened ever. Nothing ever happened, yeah. (laughs) The, The very bottom of my iceberg, the watery depths, is the theory that the sinking was an inside job by the onboard lobsters making a bid for freedom. Oh, that that one's the best one. Clearly. Nobody blames those lobsters, man. <laughs> Did it work out for them? We'll never know, but it was a good attempt. Do lobsters well, live at that depth? I feel they, they had the out. best chance of living at that depth. <laughs> <That's> true. <laughs> Here's a fun Titanic fact for you. Do you know the exact date that they found the remains on the Atlantic Ocean floor? No. August 15, 1980. Nice. That's my birthday. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I guess that would have stuck in my head. If I had read it even today, probably I would have been like, holy shit. For my ninth birthday, my grandparents got me one of those little books. You get everything that's happened on August 15. So yeah, that was in there. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. (laughs) When I was 12, my Mom went to Las Vegas for one of her conferences. And so that's where we went for vacation that year because that's what we did. And there was a Titanic exhibit at one of the hotels that was attached to our hotel. And I was like a pretty independent kid. So I walked over there and I bought a ticket and I tried to go in and they said, oh, well, how old are you? And I said I was 12 because I was impossibly truthful. And they said, oh, I'm sorry, you have to be 13 to go in without an adult. And I was just like... Please, can I please go see all the creepy things you have in there? And so I had to beg my mother to also buy a ticket to see creepy things that she did not want to see at all (laughs) and spend an hour in there with me, like trying not to look at things while I was like, oh my God, look at this stuff. (laughs) This was on the floor of the ocean. (laughs) I went to the one when it was here, but I was in my 30s and was allowed to buy a ticket by myself because I was. I just, I have such a clear memory of that because I was just like, if I had just lied a tiny bit, no one would have ever known. They weren't going <laughs> to check. Who carries ID at 13? Yeah, you but Ashlyn, are you sure that it was really 13 or was it whatever age you said you were? They were oh, going to one sign. year above that. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, I knew exactly how that conversation was going to go. But honestly, I was such a goody two shoes that like it had worked out in my life for this for me to just be very truthful about things because teachers would just let me do things anyway. And but this person did not know that about me. They did not have this information that I was (laughs) such a good person that they should let me go. (laughs) I'm normally allowed to do these things. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> to carry a little like, sign I'm around. So naive. <laughs> I'm very precocious. Please love me. Yeah, so naive. <laughs> Goodbye, home sweet home. I'm in the dance band on the Titanic. Sing near my car to leave. The icebergs on the starboard bow. Won't you dance with me? Up next, we have Laura's iceberg. 
my iceberg, I, I really tried to structure this as an iceberg with a flow. And as we discussed in our group chat, my brain apparently works different than all of yours. <laughs> Neurotypical. So, yeah, I know, I know. But so I think I, I, I tried, I tried. And but it, it, instead of doing little bits of things, I tried to connect it all together. Because that's very much I'm very much the type of person that I need to write it all from start to finish without stopping. I cannot jump around. That is a problem. Anyway, so I wanted to talk a little bit about aspartame today. Because if ever there's been a food stuff or a nutrition thing that has to do with conspiracy theories, aspartame is at or near the top of the list, probably between that and fluoride. They kind of, I think they battle it out for conspiracy theory top spots. I'm very excited for this. <laughs> okay. And I verified with Jem, while I know that I've mentioned aspartame and sweeteners and things like that, numerous, like innumerable times on this show. I don't think I've actually ever talked about aspartame a lot. So I'm going to assume that everyone is at least somewhat familiar with aspartame, like what, what it's used for. Diet Mind control. Yeah, well, <laughs> apparently. So it is an artificial sweetener. It is just very quickly. It is a it's made up of two amino acids, aspartic acid and phenylalanine. And when joined together, it tastes sweet. And like many of the best things, it was discovered by accident by a careless scientist who licked his finger. And the rest is corporate conspiracy history. And also, it's definitely the biggest poison known to man. So those are kind of the two threads of things that we hear about aspartame. Part of the problem with aspartame comes right from when it was trying to gain approval. So as the story goes, aspartame was first put up for approval by the FDA in the late 70s, but it was 11 of the studies were, were flagged with concerns, and so it was denied its approval request. And so did you all know that Donald Rumsfeld helped get aspartame approved for sale? That upsets me. <laughs> somehow not surprising, though. I, I was going to make no. a joke that it was his greatest crime, but that would be an extremely poor taste. So, <laughs> yeah, no, not even in the top 1,000. <laughs> no. Unless aspartame even... inspired him to do the other ones. <laughs> mm, hey, mind, <gasps> mind control. control. <laughs> yeah. So, so, as I was trying to build an iceberg, I actually ended up building more one of those string webs connecting all the dots all over the place. <laughs> yes, I can't wait. I, it's, it's really not as good as I'm making it sound right now. But, so, the story goes... Donald Rumsfeld was CEO of the company G.D. Searle, which was the company that employed the scientist who discovered aspartame and was thus seeking the FDA approval. Donald Rumsfeld was also on the transition team for one well-beloved president, Reagan. Is that how you say his name? Reagan? That, that guy? Reagan. We, Ray we call Gun. him your holiness down here. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Thank you. I'm so glad we have an American on here to correct me with this. <laughs> Saint Reagan. Saint Reagan. <laughs> Rotten Ronnie. Oh, God. Yeah. As you say that, Lauren, that is something that my dad says, but with like a snarl in his voice. Oh, and did, did you not see the snarl? 
<laughs> oh, but it's more snarly. It's like 70-year-old yeah. man snarly. Well, anyway, yeah. in 1981, Ronald Reagan is gets into the Oval Office, and one of the first things that he does is dismisses the, F, the current FDA commissioner and instead appoints Arthur Hull Hayes as the FDA commissioner. And depending on how conspiratorial you want to go, it may be that he did not have sufficient expertise to be in this role, what? potentially. And shortly after the decision to halt the approval of aspartame was overturned and G.D. Searle could then start selling that baby. And then two years later, Arthur Hull Hayes joined as a medical advisor, the PR firm of G.D. Searle. So that's great. Also, shortly after this approval, or sorry, Right around the time of all of this happening, two different attorneys that were called on to put together grand juries looking at this situation with the aspartame approval, both of them left their posts within a year of all of this, both joining law firms or PR firms connected with either G.D. Searle or Monsanto, who shortly thereafter purchased G.D. Searle. So this was definitely all on the up and up. And I also will say that Arthur Hull Hayes was connected to a series of bad decisions made by the FDA and was ultimately sort of forced out of his position slash decided to leave because he'd been found to be accepting gifts from industry groups. Back when that could actually ruin political careers in America. Exactly, right? <laughs> Instead of it being like a badge of honor. <laughs> so if you want to go that route, aspartame was not safe from the get-go, and it was political and corporate conspiracy that kept it going and keeps it on the shelves today. Of course, if you want to go next level, all you need to do is listen to the company that bought G.D. Searle. Did you hear me say it? Monsanto? Because really, once you say the word Monsanto, that really just opens up so many more icebergs. And I'm not <laughs> going to get into that too much today, except pretty much any type of ill health effects that can be ascribed to aspartame has also been ascribed to the GMO products made by Monsanto. The name now Monsanto just births all these little burglets. Oh, so, so many. And like they when grow the so wall quickly. of a glacier falls off or something. <laughs> yeah. Caused by Monsanto. Yeah. Caused by... <laughs> one of my co-hosts on one of my podcasts produced a movie called Science Moms. And she went to Monsanto to actually interview with them. It was an experience, and it made certain sections of the atheist community just lose their mind. It was great. Yep. Which one, if our listeners want to check it out, that sounds like yeah. fun. It's called Science Moms, and the podcast that Natalie Newell is on with me is called But I Heard About It. Nice. Cool. That sounds really interesting. We take movies or shows that... Some of the people on the show have watched and some haven't, and we compare first impressions with nostalgia. Okay. Okay. I, I like cool. that concept. Very cool. Sounds like something you and Jem could do very easily. <laughs> <laughs> the long list of movies that Jem has fond nostalgia for, and Laura's like, okay. <laughs> yeah, my, my husband grew up more or less in a cult and wasn't allowed to watch anything beyond a G rating. So I've introduced him to movies like Back to the Future. Like we're talking that level of nice. ingrained in the culture. That's kind of how we got the show started. And then we added two people. Nice. 
That's really fun. I like that concept. Watching Back to the Future with your spouse sounds a lot better than, I don't know, the time I forced Laura to watch Dead Heat. That was exactly the movie that came to mind when Jen's <laughs> like, this was the best movie ever. Cla- classic. It was not. What, like late 80s, early 90s, I think early 90s zombie buddy cop film? <laughs> I think I made Dave and Lauren watch Good Burger once. That did not age well at all. <laughs> Oof. I can't I imagine that running in the from theater. the theater. <laughs> oh, cool runnings. I have a lot of nostalgia for that. <laughs> anyway, I'm going to talk more about Sorry. Astro Go now. ahead, Laura. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's really fine. But apparently aspartame is not for you. Aspartame is linked to more health conditions than I can really count, quite honestly. And and I won't say the list goes on and on, but it just never quits, if you want to put it that way. So proponents will say that the industry-funded research, of course, is biased and overwhelmingly supports safety, whereas independent research does not, and it uh, overwhelmingly supports harm of aspartame. And this theory is best supported by someone who took the story to 60 Minutes and is a big proponent of the dangers of MSG. So just for a little context with that. Have we actually talked about MSG on this podcast, about how MSG allergies are essentially a racist Uh, myth? I... I... This is another feel, point on your yarn diagram. <laughs> it is. Well, that's that's exactly it. So when you go, just a fun side note, when you go to the website aspartamekills.com, which was typically linked to through things that I'm going to get to in a minute, side note to that side note, you can buy that domain name if you want to. It is for sale as advertised on that website. But also Amazing. most of what they talk about is like, MSG things and GMO and back to Monsanto and so on and so forth. So we can talk more about MSG. There's actually a dietitian out of Hamilton. I don't know. She's out of Ontario who is, she's a media dietitian and she did a great video on this. And so I can put that in the show notes too. So she is a Chinese Canadian and she did a great video on the MSG and racism thing. So check that out. Anyway, back to aspartame here. One of the big concerns for people is that aspartame doesn't actually help you lose weight. Oh, I'm sorry. I should do content warning for fat phobia and really, and I'll try to clean up the language here, but content warning for that. One of the problems with aspartame or one of the health issues is that it doesn't actually make you lose weight. It actually makes you gain weight. (gasps) Could it be? which isn't actually proven through any of the research that's out there. And it doesn't really matter if it does, but this is listed as another one of its failings. And has then fallen into the hands of low-carb, high-fat, insulin-obesity model proponents as another reason why, I don't know, everything sweet is bad for you. I'm not entirely sure, but they've jumped on that bandwagon. So that's real fun. But really, the, I guess the fourth level thing with aspartame is the Nancy Markle letter. I'm really curious. Has anybody read this or heard about this? No, this doesn't ring any bells for me. This is what starts it all. While there have been concerns over the five decades, small concerns by people who are not regarded as experts in the field, 
and or were not using high quality evidence to back up their claims of concerns. In 1998, this letter started to circle through email chain letters, and it listed approximately 20 different health conditions caused by aspartame, including things like lupus and multiple sclerosis. And it basically will rot and kill you. And the author of that, while nobody knows who this Nancy Markle is, it's widely believed that she is, in fact, Dr. Betty Martini, whose website slash email was responsible for first propagating this letter, who used to be more around on the internet and appears to do a lot of podcasts on shows that talk about anti-vax types of things and spiritual healing types of things and has a LinkedIn page and only lists her two organizations related to eradicating the use of aspartame as her work experience. So that's fun. That's, mm. that's that. <laughs> that's her entire mission in life. That is her entire mission in life, and aspartame will kill you. It's been thoroughly debunked, but it they it continues to to circle and that. So you can go either way: the corporate espionage, or or not espionage, conspiracy, or you can go: it's a poison and it's going to kill you. <laughs> That's all I got. Thanks, Laura. Very cool. So I understand, Lauren, that you've got a somewhat abbreviated segment for us. Well, I didn't do an entire iceberg. Because my day is wonkus and I have a lot of trainees right now. Yay. Well, will it help <laughs> if I tell you that my iceberg comes in six layers? Yes, of course. <laughs> well, I'll so, take your extra layers. <laughs> like everything I do, I started at the bottom. So I just have a level four because this is what I want, really the one I wanted to build up down to. I guess it's down. This is the one I wanted to build down to. And it this will really piss off my mother, so I don't know if she still listens to the show. If so, hi, Joni. <laughs> if not, oh well. So QE2, not the boat. I only have the one point I want to bring up. It's from the very bottom, holy crap, batshit list. So just like the album title from Gen X, favorite fascists, The Smiths, The Queen is Dead. The Queen is dead, boy. She real dead. The conspiracy is that Buckingham Palace, Buckhouse, is keeping the fiction going to not ruin the celebrations for her 75th crown anniversary happening this year. Apparently, the 2021 Christmas message, which was pre-recorded, is a deep fake. People are divided on whether Charles killed her with COVID, or if the necromancy keeping her and Phil alive, well, it might have just died with him. That's it. That's my segment. <laughs> That was like an ice cube. (laughs) (laughs) But it's an ice cube with like a fly stuck in it. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I was reading some things this morning about how there's a whole bunch of school children in the UK who all received, everybody received a beautifully bound book about the Queen's 75 years on the throne. These children can't afford school lunches, but they are getting this government propaganda book. I think similar thoughts every single time I drive past one of the giant billboards in Winnipeg about what a great job the Manitoba government did in handling COVID. Oh boy. And what a great job they're doing with the new budget. It 
is astonishing. I, I know that in the United States, your election laws and your finance laws are much wider open than we have here. We have fairly strict like finance regulations. You can't, well, I don't need to get into that, but it definitely seems like the government is spending money campaigning to be reelected. <laughs> I have thoughts, but we can save them for a different episode where I can swear a lot. move on to our final segment, and I am going to speed through it as much as possible, but as listeners know, that is not very much. Just because we're on five of five, don't think that you're like halfway through this show. (laughs) (laughs) So I tried to structure this as an iceberg, but it's, it's a bit of a windy road. You might, I don't, even an iceberg... Well, it's less of an iceberg. Let's think of it more as a a pyramid that extends deep beneath the sands. Because I'm talking about the Curse of the Pharaohs. Oh Uh, my goodness. (laughs) This is like the OG iceberg. I watched so many like National Geographic specials about this stuff. There is so much here that we could do multiple entire shows on this. I'm going to try to speed through as as much of it as I can. But I, I would like to start by noting that I... The Wikipedia entry on the Curse of the Pharaohs notes that the curse, quote, does not differentiate between thieves and archaeologists, which made me laugh. Differentiating archaeologists from thieves is notoriously difficult, of course. Just ask the British Museum, the world's largest receiver of stolen goods. That belongs in a museum! The stories of cursed mummies have been making the rounds for centuries. While we've only been able to read hieroglyphs and therefore curses written in hieroglyphs for about 100 years, Louis Penichet wrote in 1699 of a traveler who purchased two mummies in Alexandria. Penichet wrote that during the subsequent sea voyage, the traveler's ship was tossed by storms and he was visited by two specters who refused to depart until the mummies were thrown overboard. In more modern times, Zahi Hawass wrote of transporting several artifacts from the Greco-Roman site of Qom Abu Bilo. As Hawass tells it, his cousin died on that day, his uncle died exactly a year later, and his aunt precisely two years after that. Many years afterward, when he was involved in excavations at Giza, Hawass reported... I want to insert something, so I'm confused. Was it one, another year, and then skip? Yeah, it skipped a year. Two years so it was like a Fibonacci thing happening. Yeah. <laughs> I want to know what happened at year three and then etc. Do not say Fibonacci in the in the iceberg. <laughs> oh. I'm no, sure somebody bad, died that day, Ashlyn. Just maybe not somebody related to Hawas. So many years afterward, when he was involved in excavations at Giza, Hawas reported that he encountered a curse, which he translated as, quote, All people who enter this tomb, who will make evil against this tomb and destroy it, may the crocodile be against them in water, and snakes against them on land. May the hippopotamus be against them in water, the scorpion on land. Captain Hook? (laughs) (laughs) So, we're going to start here at level one, the Pharaoh's Curse. When I say the Pharaoh's Curse, or the Mummy's Curse... Who do you think of immediately? Lord Carnarvon. Yeah. So for people who are less into Egyptology, we're talking about the excavation of King Tut's tomb. 
On the 29th of November, 1922, KV-62, the tomb of Pharaoh Tutankhamun, was opened by a team of British archaeologists led by Egyptologist Howard Carter. The tomb, which is found in the Valley of the Kings, was discovered earlier that year. Unlike many of the other tombs, which had been thoroughly plundered over the millennia, King Tut's tomb was hidden by debris and not extensively robbed in the intervening years. It was thus the first largely intact royal burial site found in ancient Egypt. According to James Henry Breasted, who worked with Carter shortly after the excavation, on the day the tomb was opened, Carter sent a messenger on an errand to his house. As he approached Carter's home, the messenger said that he heard a faint, almost human cry. And upon reaching Carter's house, he found Carter's canary dead, its cage occupied by a cobra, the symbol of the Egyptian monarchy, the bird crushed in its jaws. Human deaths soon followed this avian one. The first was that of Lord Carnarvon, the financier of Carter's excavation. Carnarvon's death occurred four weeks after the tomb was first opened, and it followed him being bitten on the cheek by a mosquito. The bite healed, but as he was shaving it one morning, he cut it, and his death was attributed to septic pneumonia. It's such Arth- a way to go! It was so ridiculous! <laughs> Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, no friend of skeptical folks, suggested that the death should be attributed to elemental spirits, who had been conjured by the priests who guarded Tut's royal tomb. Arthur Weigel, correspondent for the Daily Mail, reported that he had watched Lord Carnarvon joking and laughing as he first entered the tomb. Weigel claims that he told fellow reporter H.V. Morton at the time, I give him six weeks to live. (laughs) Six months after Carnarvon's death, the first autopsy was carried out on the body of Tutankhamun. The doctor found a healed lesion on the pharaoh's left cheek, which many speculate was in the exact same place as the bite that killed Carnarvon. Most accounts attribute five deaths to the curse of King Tut. Lord Carnarvon, whose given name was George, George Herbert, who was the financial backer of the excavation and who was present at the tomb's opening. George J. Gould I, an early visitor to the tomb. A.C. Mace, another member of Carter's excavation team. Captain the Honorable Richard Bethel, who was Carter's secretary, and finally Howard Carter himself, the leader of the expedition. But let's turn away from King Tut for a moment and discuss the curse of Amon Ra. Mm. I was wondering if we're going to get to Amarna. (laughs) I will quote from a widely read source on the subject. Of all tales of the supernatural, this one is perhaps the best documented, the most disturbing, and the most difficult to explain. The princess of Amun-Ra lived some 1,500 years before Christ. When she died, she was laid in an ornate wooden coffin and buried deep in a vault at Luxor on the banks of the Nile. In the late 1890s, four rich young Englishmen visiting the excavations at Luxor were invited to buy an exquisitely fashioned mummy case containing the remains of the princess of Amun-Ra. They drew lots. The man who won paid several thousand pounds and had the coffin taken to his hotel. A few hours later, he was seen walking out towards the desert. He never returned. The next day, one of the remaining three men was shot by an Egyptian servant accidentally. His arm was so severely wounded it had to be amputated. The third man in the foursome found on his return home that the bank holding his entire savings had failed. 
the fourth man suffered a severe illness, lost his job, and was reduced to selling matches in the street. Nevertheless, the coffin reached England, causing other misfortunes along the way, where it was bought by a London businessman. After three of his family members had been injured in a road accident and his house damaged by fire, the businessman donated it to the British Museum. As the coffin was being unlocked from a truck in the museum courtyard, the truck suddenly went into reverse and trapped a passerby. Then, as the casket was being lifted up the stairs by two workmen, one fell and broke his leg. The other, apparently in perfect health, died unaccountably two days later. Once the princess was installed in the Egyptian room, trouble really started. The museum's night watchman frequently heard frantic hammering and sobbing from the coffin. Other exhibits in the room were also often hurled about at night. One watchman died on duty, making the other watchman want to quit. Cleaners refused to go near the princess too. When a visitor derisively flicked a dust cloth in the face painted on the coffin, his child died of measles soon afterwards. Finally, the authorities had the mummy carried down to the basement, figuring it could not do any harm down there. Within a week, one of the helpers was seriously ill, and the supervisor of the move was found dead on his desk. By now, the papers had heard of it. A journalist photographer took a picture of the mummy case, and when he developed it, the painting on the coffin was a horrifying human face. The photographer was said to have gone home then, locked his bedroom door, and shot himself. Soon afterwards, the museum sold the mummy to a private collector. After continual misfortune and deaths, the owner banished it to the attic. A well-known authority on the occult, Madame Helena Blatsky, visited the premises. Upon entry, she was seized with shivering fit and searched the house for the source of an evil influence of incredible intensity. She finally came to the attic and found the mummy case. Can you exorcise this evil spirit? asked the owner. There is no such thing as exorcism. Evil remains evil forever. Nothing can be done about it. I implore you to get rid of this evil as soon as possible but no British museum would take the mummy. The fact that almost 20 people had met with misfortune, disaster, or death from the handling of the casket in barely 10 years was now well known. Eventually, a hard-headed American archaeologist who dismissed the happenings as quirks of circumstance paid a handsome price for the mummy and arranged for its removal to New York. In April 1912, the new owner escorted its treasurer aboard a sparkling new White Star liner about to make its maiden voyage to New York. <laughs> On the night of April 14th, amid scenes of unprecedented horror, the Princess of Amun Ra accompanied 1,500 passengers to their deaths at the bottom of the Atlantic. The name of the ship was, of course, HMS Titanic. <laughs> <laughs> Watching Ashlyn's face when she realized what Jem was saying was just perfect. I, well, I almost I lost it because Jem has such a specific long list of tragedies voice. <laughs> it was like in full effect of like let's talk about all the orphans and yeah, it was fun. and then and then it transitioned from long list of tragedies voice into spooky story voice. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> it's good. It's good. So the widely read source that I'm quoting here, of course, is a chain letter that most people with internet access would have received at some point in the late 90s. But it is important to note that this story itself was corroborated by survivors of the Titanic disaster, several of whom had personally spoken to William Stead, the 
described hard-hearted American archaeologist who went down with a ship. This story was widely reported, as I said, and this version that I just related from the chain letter is largely cribbed from a Washington Post story published May 12th, 1912, which ran under the headline, and I quote, Ghost of the Titanic, Vengeance of Hoodoo Mummy Followed Man Who Wrote Its History. Yikes. We will get back to this. But first, let's proceed to level three of our pyramid, shall we? But first, an ad break (laughs) for level three. Level three is The Mummy's Curse. And when I say The Mummy, of course, I'm referring to the 1999 film starring Brendan Fraser, the sequel to which would set Dwayne The Rock Johnson on a collision course with film stardom and America's collective art. Also the catalyst for so much bisexuality. Yep. According to Entertainment Weekly... The 1999 film, which was shot in Morocco, was plagued with disaster, including venomous snakes, blinding sandstorms, and illness among the cast and crew. But the most harrowing incident on set was when Brendan Fraser died? Almost died? Didn't didn't die, probably. I I mean, look, I'm not saying that (laughs) Brendan Fraser died while shooting The Mummy and his performance in No Sudden Move is actually the result of a Weekend at Bernie's situation, because that would be ridiculous. It's clearly a result of a Weekend at Bernie's 2 situation. (laughs) Weekend at Bernie's aficionados will know what I'm talking about. Wait, where was I? I had the box set. Ah, right. Good. Yeah. I was going to say good movie. No, not a good movie. (laughs) It's definitely a movie. Back to (laughs) Brendan Fraser dying. Not not dying. I mean, look, here's what happened. While shooting one of the opening scenes of 1999's only hit movie, The Mummy, Brendan Fraser was killed, or almost killed, by the gallows. In the scene, Fraser's character is being hanged. Wide shots feature a stunt performer in a harness, but the director wanted a close-up of the character struggling to breathe. According to Fraser, director Stephen Summers wasn't satisfied that the hanging looked realistic enough and decided to up the ante a bit. Here's how Fraser related it to Entertainment Weekly. Quote, There was a hangman's gallows. And there was a hemp rope tied into a noose that was placed around my neck. The first take, I'm doing my best, choking, acting. Steve says, can we get another one and take up the tension on the rope? I said, all right, one more take. Because a noose around your neck's going to choke you in the arteries, no matter what. So the stuntman took up the tension in the rope, and I went up on the balls of my feet. Then I guess he took the tension up again. And I'm not a ballerina. I can't stand on my tiptoes. I remember seeing the camera start to pan around. But then it was like a black iris at the end of a silent film. It was like turning down the volume switch in your home stereo, like the Death Star powering down. I regained consciousness, and one of the EMTs was saying my name. According to his co-star, Rachel Weiss, Fraser stopped breathing and required CPR. Summers, the director, in turn, blamed Fraser for the incident. According to Summers, quote, he tightens the noose, and then he says, as we're about to get the shot, he's, he's trying to make it look like it's really strangling him. I guess it cut off his carotid artery or whatever and knocked him out. He did it to himself. So here already, we're beginning to explain things. We're arriving at what I'm going to call level four, the scientific explanations. I don't know if we're going up or down, but either way, we're, we're trying to explain some of these curses. There are myriad explanations proffered for the deaths of those involved in the excavation of Tutankhamun's tomb. Early attempts to explain the death of Carnivan 
attributed it to mycotoxicosis, exposure to toxic fungi in the tomb, resulting in a fungal pneumonia. The Lancet actually investigated this claim and ruled it highly unlikely, pointing out that the Earl was only one of many to enter the tomb, and none of the others were affected. There were other deaths, of course, but those are not so easily attributed to mycotoxicosis. Carnivon's official cause of death was, quote, pneumonia supervening on facial erysipelas, which is to say a streptococcal infection of the soft tissues of the face. The pneumonia itself appears to have resulted from the blood infection stemming from the cut to his face, which itself was caused by the mosquito bite or shaving over the mosquito bite. And the Lancet reports that Carnivan had long been prone to severe and frequent lung infections. Quote, the Earl's immune system was easily overwhelmed by erysipelas. So that is the Lancet's explanation for Carnivan's death. And it's the standard explanation. He died of pneumonia after getting sepsis, after getting an infected cut, after getting a mosquito bite. And there are mosquitoes on the Nile. That's how curses work, Jim. <laughs> so we have the other four people who died that we also have to explain, right? So we have George J. Gould I, the visitor. He died actually in May, so about five months after the opening of the tomb. He developed a fever. So this could be any number of things. This could have been malaria. We know it was a febrile illness of some sort. A.C. Mace, the member of his excavation team who died, also suffered pneumonia in his final years. He died in 1928, so now we're already five years after the tomb was opened. Captain the Honorable Richard Bethel, who is Carter's secretary, you'll recall who died, he died more than a year later at the end of 1929, and reports speculate that he was smothered to death. Maybe by a mummy, but it was at the Mayfair Club, so probably not. <laughs> and then Howard Carter himself, he did not die until 1939, so this is more than 16 years after the opening of the tomb. So I guess that mummy was, maybe it's an eight follows situation. <laughs> he was just really far away and it took the mummy a while to get there. <laughs> I actually, I don't think, this is just tangentially related, but maybe we'll call it level 4A. I had a recurring nightmare as a child that I was being stalked by a mummy. Yeah, I remember it was the first dream that I can remember having multiple times, pretty much the same way every time. My dad had like a mad scientist library collection in my dream, almost in real life. But he had like all sorts of artifacts and like that in my dream. Yeah. And he had a mummy, apparently. And it killed me repeatedly. Anywho. Jim, is your dad actually the reincarnation of Howard Carter? <laughs> <laughs> I would say, if anything, and we'll get to this a little bit later, he is much more likely to be the reincarnation of William Stead. <laughs> <laughs> How much True. more later is there, Jim? Yeah, I, I'm just wanting to re remind you that it is eight o'clock and we still have to go get our children. Okay, so boom, boom. I would like to remind listeners that before we consider scientific explanations for something, we should first verify that that is something that requires an explanation. So sure, it's funny to point out that or, or, it's, or it's fun to try to come up with plausible theories as to why these people might have died. But we should first ask ourselves, did the people who opened King Tut's tomb die 
at a rate any higher than the general population or of things that could plausibly be attributed to a curse. This is a vital first step when you're trying to explain something. First, figure out, is there something to explain? And many knee-jerk skeptical reactions to extraordinary claims miss this step for some reason. Let's not waste our time spitting out hypotheses as to why boats and planes are mysteriously disappearing over the Bermuda Triangle, when in fact there are no more disappearances in that region than any other. So skeptics have done many statistical analyses of the curse of King Tut in particular, and there were 58 people present when the tomb and sarcophagus were opened, and within... 12 years, within the first dozen years after the opening, only six had died. So there is no reason to believe that there is something that actually requires an explanation here. There's nothing spooky going on. 10% of the people had died within 12 years, and given the ages of the people who were there at the time and the life expectancy, that is extremely normal. Mm-hmm. Let's move on to level five. Not scientific explanations, but sociological explanations. Sure, some of these happenings can be explained scientifically, but all of them? So as I said, before we ask whether the Pharaoh's curse is to blame for the mysterious deaths of those who opened King Tut's tomb, we must first ask, were there mysterious deaths? But I sneakily skipped an even earlier step. Before we blame deaths on King Tut's curse, we should check first, not only to see whether there were unusual deaths, but to see whether there was a curse. Of course! We should ask ourselves whether anyone would have cursed the tomb. Presuming curses actually exist, which of course they don't, unless they function as laws of nature, which I guess wouldn't really make them supernatural in that case, someone or something would have to have like done the cursing, right? Of the tomb. So in that case, the cursors would be either the gods of Egypt or more likely the priests or religious leaders of the religion. Now, there are occasional instances of genuine curses being engraved inside or on the face of tombs. This is the case in the, oh boy, I should have written myself a phonetic pronunciation, the Mastaba of Kantika Ikeki of the 6th dynasty at Saqqara. There's a curse carved on that tomb. That curse read, apparently, quote, as for all men who shall enter this my tomb impure, there will be judgment. An end shall be made for him. I shall seize his neck like a bird. I shall cast the fear of myself into him. And the tomb of Ankh Tifi, which was from the 9th to 10th dynasty, also contains the warning, quote, Any ruler who shall do evil or wickedness to this coffin may Heman not accept any goods he offers, it's a local deity, and may his heir not inherit. But these curses were actually quite rare at the time, and curses that actually promised sort of like death or true judgment were even rarer still. There is no record of any curse being found graven anywhere or on any artifact from King Tut's tomb. So there's no reason to believe that there is a curse there to begin with. But if that's true, what of the tale of the Titanic? That certainly seems difficult to explain, doesn't it? Or does it? I know the answer to this one. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to crib extensively, so I'm going to quote here from Snopes. In fact, the mummy to which the story refers, which is actually just a coffin lid, not the mummy of the priestess of Amun, never left the British Museum, and it is still there to this day. 
The story was concocted around the turn of the century by two Englishmen named William Stead and Douglas Murray. Stead was a well-known journalist who crusaded on behalf of liberal causes. We don't know much about Murray. He's been described as an Egyptologist and as the man who shipped the mummy in question to London in the first place, but he was probably neither. Stead and Murray crafted an elaborate horror story about a mummy that was brought to England and set up in the drawing room of an acquaintance of theirs. The morning after the mummy arrived, they claimed, everything breakable in the room was destroyed. The mummy was moved from room to room within the house, but each move resulted in the same destruction of all the breakable objects at hand. Wherever the mummy went, it brought sickness, death, and destruction to its owner. Sometime after Stead and Marie invented their mummy tale, they were visiting the first Egyptian room of the British Museum, and they noticed the coffin lid of the priestess of Amun. They concocted yet another story that the look of terror and anguish in the face depicted Picked it on the coffin lid indicated that the coffin's original occupant was a tormented soul and that her evil spirit was now loose in the world. Stead and Murray told their fanciful oh. tale to eager newspaper reporters who, then as now, weren't about to let the truth get in the way of a sensationally good story. <laughs> the two stories were conflated into one and spread widely, and the priestess of Amun came to be identified as the mummy whose mortal remains wreaked havoc wherever they were stored. This is the story of the unlucky mummy. This ghost story made the leap from London to the Titanic after William Stead went down with the ill-fated ship on the 15th of April, 1912. Stead was traveling to America at President Taft's request to address a peace conference, and he took delight in relating his cursed mummy tale to Titanic passengers. He reportedly defied superstition by starting his narrative at a dinner party on Friday the 12th of April and drew it out so that he concluded the tale just after midnight on the 13th. A few days after the Titanic sinking, one of the survivors recounted Stead's cursed mummy tale in an interview with the New York World. And eventually, the ghost story Stead and Murray invented, Stead's presence aboard the Titanic, and reports of Stead's having related the mummy tale to Titanic passengers all became jumbled together, producing a new legend about an actual mummy aboard the Titanic, which was never there. So it's true that William Stead went down with a ship, but the mummy did not. Not only was there no curse in this case, but there wasn't even a mummy. <laughs> now we're at level six, the final level. We've gone past scientific explanations and sociological explanations. We are now at literary explanations. What is actually <laughs> going on here? Okay, I just want to say, if they were having such a hard time getting rid of that mummy in your original story, wasn't that still the time where they were basically like burning them for train fuel? <laughs> yeah. Wouldn't it have been that hard to get rid of a mummy? <laughs> And eating them. Paint with it or eat it. Yeah. Oof. So it's worth asking where the story of mummy's curses truly comes from, because these stories have been around since before, as I believe I mentioned up at the top, since before we were able to translate hieroglyphs. And by we, I mean the modern scientific establishment and even people in Egypt as well. So the idea of the curse of a mummy is interlinked with the idea of mummies themselves rising from the dead, as in 1999's only hit film, The Mummy. And there are several early stories that were written in the early 19th century. The first, I believe, was published in 1827, featuring mummies rising from the grave to torment their oppressors. 
The one was written by Jane C. Loudon, and it was called The Mummy, or A Tale of the 22nd Century, which combined science fiction and horror. So it was written by Jane C. Loudon, but it was published anonymously in 1827. Another was Lost in a Pyramid, or The Mummy's Curse, which was a piece of mummy fiction written by Louisa May Alcott that was later discovered, I believe, after her death. No way. Hmm. And th- there were fiction. there were several other stories that were subsequently discovered by S.J. Wolf, Robert Singerman, and Jasmine Day. Did so, you mention the Poe one? Sorry. sorry excuse me. However, there were two stories that were subsequently discovered by S.J. Wolf, Robert Singerman, and Jasmine Day. Those stories were the anonymous 1862 story, The Mummy's Soul, and Jane G. Austen's 1868 story, After 3,000 Years. And all of these stories that I've mentioned have very similar plots. The mummies are all female, and they all take magical revenge upon their male desecrators. Many literary theorists, including Jasmine Day argue that the European literary concept of mummies curses are making an analogy between tomb desecration and rape. Mm. And thus, the true curse was patriarchy all along. <laughs> yep. Well done. I'm not sure I would say well done. Thoroughly done, perhaps. <laughs> it was no lengthy. It was well as if you left it on the barbecue until, until it's <laughs> all the way through. wow not saying it's bad well why don't we wrap this episode up with something nice shall we i mean we just had a vegan grilling burn that's pretty nice (laughs) (laughs) okay i'll tell i'll say mine something nice first i have resisted a podcast recommendation that many of my friends have given me for many years. I recently finally started listening to Behind the Life, the Universe, and everything else. Quite fun. (laughs) (laughs) Wow, Jem. (laughs) Interrupting my something nice. I'm sorry. After you so kindly made a very funny joke that I didn't see until just now using the chat during my segment instead of interrupting. I did. Okay. So I finally started listening to Behind the Bastards, which is quite fun. But an even better podcast that I found because of Behind the Bastards is Cool People Who Did Cool Stuff, which just started and is so good and so hopeful. And I'm learning about stuff that I did not know much about. And it's so good. It's hosted by Margaret Kiljoy. She's great. so far, they have done The Haymarket Affair. The Jane Collective, which did direct access abortion work, how the South won the Civil War for the Union, a whole bunch of like black history that I didn't know about the Civil War. Super cool. And they just finished one about the Paris Commune. And this week is gay resistance to Nazis. Like, can it get any better than this podcast? (laughs) (laughs) Also, our podcast also good. Not as good as this one. I'm going to say it's better than our podcast. You should. And I feel like everyone who listens to our podcast would love this. So you should go listen to it. Cool people who did cool stuff. Genuine recommendation from me. Awesome. I'm actually reading one of Margaret Kiljoy's books right now. So it's very good so far. Very cool. Mine is a bit of an elegy. It is to the death of standard beer. The Molson 
announced yesterday they are officially, after several years of it being on the fence, they are getting rid of Standard Lager, which was the Manitoba Dad beer. It was the yellow no-name label of beer, (laughs) and it was my drink of choice because I'm a yellow no-name label dad jokes kind of person. It wasn't good. It wasn't great. It was standard. (laughs) And now I have to pick a different beer identity. Oh, man. Godspeed, standard. You sucked. (laughs) Was it really cheap, though? It was a standard domestic beer, and I'm like, I mostly paid staff prices, so three dollars a bottle. Average, including the price. Yeah. Okay. It was just standard. Yeah, I did not grow up with standard. I didn't know that this was a thing until I started working in a restaurant and bar area. But I do recall that people were very excited when it became more available for a while, and then very sad that it was going to be going off the market. And (laughs) I went through this already with Crystal, Labatt Crystal. That was the Northwestern Ontario version of Standard. It's gone. I started drinking it because my dad drank it, so it was in the fridge. And then Standard's gone, and now I'm going to have to find a new beer identity. Basically, all of my segments this this episode are for Brendan, because they and I (laughs) were talking about this yesterday on Twitter. (laughs) Hi, Brendan. I hope you still listen. I'm very lucky that the alcohol that I started drinking was from my friends' parents' liquor cabinets and and not mine because my dad just had a still in the basement. And oh, God. I still have my sight. percent on brand. I've never the, met him, but I know the only The only way we found out that my dad came down with diabetes when he was 42 was because he, he was making his own beer and liquors and it was just something was very wrong. Well, because he was drinking a lot more of the alcohol sugar, that's how we figured it. Like that's he was having a whole bunch of like wacky blood oh. stuff. So it, it didn't help a process that was already in the works, perhaps. <laughs> oh no, he it had been in his like he had been diabetic undiagnosed for several years ah. before then, but it wasn't until there was literally beer on tap. <laughs> <laughs> but an also good thing is Ashlyn put in our orchard. And our garden is full of growing things, and it's beautiful. And probably my beautiful way. We haven't recorded in so long. Yeah, we planted all our fruit trees and all our strawberries, and our front yard is totally transformed. And we put in a super gay fence. (laughs) I saw that. It's so colorful. What's everyone else's something nice? Marissa, do you have something for us? Sure. Well... Some people may know that in addition to being a podcaster and an author and 86 or so other things, I am a semi-professional women's football player and I play quarterback. And I am a trans person in America who is an athlete, which has been mentioned by politicians (laughs) a couple times, maybe. (laughs) Maybe. (laughs) Well, I just concluded my third season, my first season in this league, and Last year, I dealt with the worst vitriol of anything I had ever heard in my life for wanting to play a game. This season, polar opposite. Not a single transphobic comment was made toward me, not from my teammates, not from any team that I faced. And if they did, I certainly didn't hear it. And that includes going to one game in South Dakota, which is one of the states where people like me are banned from playing sports through the college level. So... 
I will never go into a game naive and <laughs> and anything like that ever again. But I would rather be pleasantly surprised than ever caught off guard ever again. Mm-hmm. That's really nice to hear. It was so much better. Yeah. yeah, definitely. And hopefully the next season even better still. Yeah. I've enjoyed seeing your football picks and everything on the on your Facebooks. It's been really awesome. Thank you. <laughs> Laura, what's your something nice? Oh, I was hoping to sit quietly in the corner and make the teacher just forget that I hadn't answered yet and move on. That was my class strategy. Class is too small. I once... So back in high school, in gym class, the teacher at the beginning of the class would make somebody lead the stretches every day. And I got through like eight months of the year without having to lead it. (laughs) I was very proud of it. Until one day somebody turned and said, you haven't gone yet. And I was so upset. (laughs) And that was the last nice thing that Laura can remember. (laughs) I'm I'm sorry that I'm sad. Solidarity. Oof. A nice thing that I can remember. You know what? I'm going to go with just tonight having some childcare. We haven't had that for a while. I mean, we have childcare with school and before and after and all of that kind of stuff, but we haven't been able to have someone else watch the children in the evening or, or weekend hours for some time. And so it's really nice to have a bit of time when it's not super late at night and that kind of thing to do something and have them enjoying their time with their grandmother. Awesome. Yeah, it's still light out and we're recording. This is a first. It's amazing. And my something nice is the reason this podcast is coming to you late, dear listener. I am finally done school. Yay. Hooray. For for the summer anyway. Yeah. That's so get people's hopes up. Yeah, no. Not a doctor yet, but I'm I'm halfway through my undergraduate medical training. So I'm starting clerkship in August and I have some early exposures. I'm scheduled to actually do a shadow shift next month at <laughs> You're scheduled to do a shadow shift. Sorry, that was just You know the way I pronounce words. I'm scheduled to do a shadow shift next month at <laughs> The Trans Health Clinic at Clinic with a K, and I'm looking forward to that. So, yeah, so I, I, I'm not totally slacking off this summer, but it is nice to take a break from school at least. Please be someone on staff who doesn't only believe in transmedicalism. Mm-hmm. I am ready have... for our dreams to come true. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, what are we talking about next month, Ashlyn? We are going to discuss aspects of wonderful everyday science. Sounds like fun. I I wrote a thing that I want to repurpose, and if Jem gets to do it, I do too. (laughs) (laughs) Excellent. Wait, here we go. Lauren made a better title, but I forgot it, even though I looked it up earlier. The Extraordinary Science of Everyday Things. So you can put that into my, you can splice it together if you want to, or leave it, whatever. I forgot I was that pithy. Ah. <laughs> Marissa, this was a real fun topic. Thank you so much for guesting with us. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. After listening to one episode of this show that I was editing, I'm like, I want to hang out with these people. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad that's the vibe we give off. Yay! Yeah. To and our target audience. Yes. <laughs> when we're not in the middle of an apocalypse, Ashlyn and I are actually down in Minnesota a couple of times a year, so... We could make it happen in person someday. 
let's work that out because I am willing to travel. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, Marissa didn't mention that for this football league, she drove a ridiculous number of hours every weekend in the last many weeks. Five and a half hours each way every single week since December. Yep. And that was before gas prices were four fifty a gallon. So that <laughs> that made things more difficult. No kidding. Yeah. All right. Well, it's uh, I'm not the host, but it's still bright out. So we'll let you all go get your kids. Let you all actually spend some time. And thank you for talking, everybody. Yeah. Thanks thank for, you so much. Thanks for joining thanks. us, Marissa. And thanks for joining us, listeners. This was a good one. I still have about six square feet of garden left to weed tonight, so we still have light. <laughs> Woohoo! <laughs> have a good night. Good night, good night everyone. Good night. Show notes and references for all of our episodes are available at lueepodcast.com, where you can also find links to donate or get in touch. If you'd like to support the show, the best way to do that is with a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you found us, or by sharing this episode with a friend. Life. Don't talk to me about life. He is on my list of rat fuckers. <laughs> okay. There are five people on my list of rat fuckers. And we can bleep that out. I'm sorry. I know it's a <laughs> it's a term. Okay. Well, I mean he's he's not a he's not a good dude. Um I'm trying to guess who the other four are now. I've definitely got two of them. I absolutely need you to guess right now. <laughs> Sorry, exactly Laura. You know what? This is better than my segment, so keep going. <laughs> Sorry, I need to know what okay. Jim will guess. So, I mean, Elrond is probably on there. Mm-hmm. Um, we have... Hmm. Oh, yeah, this is great content. Just Jim pondering things. <laughs> yeah, I thought you had the list ready to go. No, no. <laughs> well, Laura, continue, to continue her segment, and when Jim thinks of one, he'll just shout it. Like, like, like Kissinger has definitely got to yes. be on there as well. Kissinger is the top right of the rat fucker on. list. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, as, as he would be. What would the other two be? Okay, I'll get back to you. Okay. Oh, by the way, Thatcher is on my rat fucker list. <laughs> oh, of course. Okay, just one more. Mm, who's that last one? Okay, well, we'll, uh, we'll see if we can come <laughs> up with it before the show's over. Uh, okay, so... They were all alive during my lifetime. Interesting. Interesting. But I wanted to talk about Queen Elizabeth II. <laughs> She's not on you the list, the, though. You mean the one who died of COVID last year? Jesus Christ, Jim, why to step on the fucking segment? <laughs> Jim! Delete that line! <laughs> you, you hey, Marissa, you can just put, put, put that at the end of the podcast in the outtake section. Yeah. <laughs> Noted. It would be funny if it wasn't both of us back and forth all the time doing this. All right.